Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ian Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta, your Dana Asband, our Daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, Daf Tet, page nine. So as we said, uh, Daf Tet go- continues or provides the Gemara that's a follow-up on the Mishnah from the previous Daf. And one of the things it's talking about here is, you know, specifically the Torah scrolls themselves. And it's one, and there's a discussion here of like, you know, how exactly is this are they going to be written? Meaning what is going to be the writing, the calligraphy, I guess, the scribal shape of the letters and everything like that. So Abayin says to Rav, and I'm here at the top of the daf, and I'm continuing really what was begun in the Gemara on the previous daf. How did you establish that, meaning that breita that says that when, this is like all, you know, I'm filling it in, right? That the scrolls, the Torah scrolls are written in another language that it could still be in their same script. My area, Mikra Shikitavotargum, Vitargum Shikitavimikra. Meaning, what would happen that would if you had the Torah that was written in the Targum, or the Targum that was written as if it were the Torah, meaning in, in the in the opposite script, right? Like what would what would that case be? A filum mikra shiktavo mikra vitargum shiktavo targum nami the hakatani ajiktavenu ashurit alha sefer bidio. So the Gemara says that basically any verse, any pasuk from the Torah, uh, maybe it's the whole Tanakh, I'm not sure, that if it was written in the Hebrew of the Torah, and then you've got it together with the Targum, you've got it with that Aramaic translation, right? So then the Aramaic translation is not considered kadosh, meaning it's valuable and it's useful in understanding the, the holy, but it's not itself considered holy. So now what happens? Like, how, if you've got that, then what's your scroll? What's the status of your scroll? So the the conclusion here is until you've got a Torah scroll that has in, written in it what they call ktav ashuri, meaning that the, these are the square letters that uh, a printing a printed Hebrew of a printed chumash or printed siddur, or if you see the inside of a Torah scroll, that's what it looks like. Meaning these square letters is called ktav ashuri, and it, you so you have to have that kind of writing. On the scroll in the in ink, meaning the right kind of ink, then you've got a holy a holy scroll, a holy work, and that will be mitametayadaim. That will be um, it, it acquires that status of of kodesh, a technical a technical kodesh. Um, there is other discussion here, right? It goes on to say, well, what about that Greek, right? Meaning we just said Reb ben Gamliel said that. Well, no, the Tanakhama said it could be written in any language, but Rav Shem ben Gamal said that besides Ashuri, you could write it in Greek, right? And so the Gemara here says, well, yes, but that the Mishnah was talking about Torah scrolls, and that Brite is talking about Tefillin and Mezuzot and so on, which have to be written in Hebrew, specifically using Hebrew. So this gets a little bit complicated, and we're going to move on from it, because in the interest of time, really. Um, but basically, the question is, why do we have Tefillin and Mezuzot that are of a lesser status than the Torah itself, and those must be written in Hebrew as compared to the Torah itself that has a little bit more leeway, even according to the opinion that says only in Greek, and certainly according to the opinion that says in any language. And part of the answer, I believe, is that these are, they're holy objects, meaning they have a purpose, and part of that purpose is that their insides include the Hebrew text. Torah, which is part of the purpose of the Torah, is not just to be an object, but also to be uh, a teaching and learning and hearing kind of, you know, reenactment of Sinai kind of tool. Um, and then it goes on to talk about the Megillah, which is helpful because, as I said, that's the mission that brings us back to our Masachet in terms of content. 
And the Megillah also is supposed to be written in Hebrew, although, again, it gets a little bit complicated because if a Torah scroll has leeway, then why doesn't the Megillah, when, again, the so many generations afterwards, and also, even more specifically, it says in the Megillah itself, where we get all the rules about the Megillah, it says, Kichtavam v'chilshonam. According to the language, which certainly indicates that, that it should be able to be written in, in any language, meaning according to the people who are listening, that should be able to be in their language. Um, so, so again, like the fact that we basically say, it says, So what do we need? That the translation should be in, in Hebrew, right? Meaning, why do you need an Aramaic translation if the whole Torah, if the whole Megillah is going to be in Hebrew? And of course, that's the whole point. That's why would they would have an, a, a translation um, to help their way through the Megillah the scroll of the Megillah ends up being what should be in Hebrew. And then, as I said, this is, I said this a few days ago, there's a process of reading, whether the reading was from the Torah or from the Navi or from the Megillah, where the Targum would be recited, it reads the, the Torah reading or the Navi reading, and the idea being that then to make sure that everybody listening could understand. I find this, I have always found this to be rather picturesque. There are certain was it Yemenite communities? I think that still have a targum um, as part of their service. I don't know to what extent that still happens, um, but I do think that for our experience, I would say that books kind of change the whole of this. Because if you don't understand the Torah straight up, and I think most people don't, even if you can understand it uh, by delving in, you don't hear, understand it so fast as they're reading. But then you end up, um, you end up. Um, being able to follow or put it together with a translation or commentary as you're listening. Uh, yeah, look, printing press, all of these things, the fact that everything can be found on Safari or Google, it's just, it's a totally different world. And I think even from the last time I learned myself in Megillah, which was probably like a decade ago, the whole world has changed with access to information, misinformation too, but, but um. You know, so I just think this is just a totally different, it, it, it's it's amazing to see where the world was then versus where the world is now. Um, I'm going to move on to one of the more famous stories in the Gemara itself, which is this, the sort of Jewish version of the Septuagint. So we know that what the Septuagint was, was a translation by 72 uh, Jewish scholars that Ptolemy II Philadelphus, uh, who was like the Greek pharaoh of Egypt, asked them to translate the Torah from biblical Hebrew to Greek uh, to put into the big library in Alexandria. Um, and there's a, this narrative, this story actually appears in, um, multiple, uh, in multiple sources. There's a letter of Aristus to his brother Philocrates where it appears. It's also repeated in Philo of Alexandria and in Josephus and in some other sources as well. But on our job today, we actually have sort of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish version of it. Um, and, um, you know, this story probably took place sometime in the third century um, BCE. Um, and again, the way our story recounts it, it's sort of in a um, uh, uh, miraculous way, because what our story is going to emphasize is that the translation that all 72 scholars did were exactly the same. Now, what's interesting is that actually we know is that there tend to be sort of some differences, right, in terms of what the actual copies of the Septuagint look like and what the actual Hebrew 
Bible looked like. They weren't necessarily completely, um, you know, uh, completely the same. And also there were some stories of what we now consider to be the Apocrypha, like the Book of Maccabees, Maccabees, Judith, uh, Sirach, uh, things like that, um, that were that were included in the Septuagint. Again, that's totally not the version of what we are going to um, uh, read today. Uh, another example is the Septuagint Book of Yirmiyahu is shorter than the one that we have. So I, I encourage all of you to just read. There's tons of academic articles you can find on the web and books and things like this. But just keep in mind, whenever we have these types of stories, the way to read it as is that I'm not always convinced it's like a historical text, like it's Chazal saying this is exactly as it went down. It's the version of history that Chazal wants you to understand. In other words, we need to look for what is the message here that Chazal wants us to understand from this from this story. So it reads as follows: Titania was taught in a brisa. Ma said the Talmi Hamelch. There was an incident with you know King Talmi. Right, that he gathered seventy-two elders of Israel, right, and placed them in seventy-two houses. He didn't tell them what purpose he brought them all together for. And then he went to each of them individually and said to them, "Write for me, like a Greek translation, basically, of the Torah of Moshe, your teacher." So here's the miraculous part, right? God places an etzah, right? Which literally translates as a council. But in other words, they're saying here there's sort of some form of divine intervention, right? So he gave them some form of divine intervention here. And everybody arrived at the same uh, opinion. Or in other words, all of the translations were basically exactly the same, right? And so that the, basically the miracle here is, is that this was sort of set up to be a trick, right? If he got 72 different translations, he could get angry, told me, or he could, you know, say that maybe uh, he might misunderstand something that was in the Torah, right? He sort of assumed that there wouldn't necessarily be some accuracy or some mistranslation. But in other words, God here intervenes and basically make sure that all of the translations are actually the same. So, you know, it's interesting to see. I, I also find what's interesting about this is, is that considering that we're sort of, you know, have thought about the holidays of Hanukkah and Purim, you know, why does the day that this happened, it's not considered to be like a holiday or anything like that. That's sort of a separate question that I have. Um, but, and then basically what goes on here is, and I'm not gonna read all of it because going into it all is very, you know, would take a very long time. But it then basically lists all different um, sukim where um, the translation was something different or they substituted a word to be sensitive to a particular issue that could have come up by the original Hebrew. So, for example, the first one here is Bikatvulo. They wrote for him, meaning, again, it's saying all 72 wrote the same thing. Elohim bara God created in the beginning, Right. So we know that the way it really appears, this is supposed to be the first pasuk of the Torah, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created. So if they had written it like that, right, that um, maybe Tomi would have thought that Bereshit was the name of some type of deity or something like that. So essentially what you would do with this, and again, I know the daf doesn't necessarily allow for this, but you would basically go through each pasuk 
open up the different commentators. And again, there's a great function on Safari where you can click on the section you're studying in the Talmud. And then in the right hand, it'll have all the commentaries and you can go through them. And each commentator will explain what was the particular issue with the Pasuk. Now, what's also interesting here is, is that they're giving the translation not in the Greek, but in the Hebrew. So in other words, you would need to know where it says, right? Where it says, right? If they don't reference the correct Pasuk here, it's assuming that you have a sort of understanding of Tanakh and you know that, oh, that's actually a translation that the Talmud is giving you the Hebrew version, even though we know the Septuagint was into Greek, right? Right? I shall make him in an image and a form, right? So that was obviously, uh, that's chapter one, verse 26 of Breshi, where it says, right? Which again, could give the mistaken idea that there's many gods. So this is basically, you know, what this entire story is. Again, I'm not going to read all of the Pesukim themselves. Each one of them is actually very, very interesting. Um, and I encourage everybody, you know, to take some time. One of them, I guess that'll just point out, um, which is at the end is there's a Pasuk where it says, Etsi Rat Ha Raglayim, okay? Um, which talks about, they're listing out all of the non-kosher animals and they write one that says the short-legged creature, the Lokatulo, that's our Nevit. And they didn't write for him a rabbit. Because his wife's name was Rabbit. <laughs> and they changed it. This is the last one that's listed because they didn't want Tommy to think that they were basically trying to, you know, make fun of him in some sort of way. Um, so great story um, appears also in multiple other texts. Spend some time with this if you do have some time. Um, and, you know, again, one of these passages that's very, very famous that we find in the Talmud. I just wanted to add the way the same way that you were talking about how we've got different sources for these same kinds of narrative and some of them are extra to our Jewish tradition. The 72 surprised me when I came across it here. I was like, I thought it was 70. And also we refer to the book at the work as the translation of the 70. So I looked it up and the original, the earlier version of the same story or of a comparable version of it um, has 70. And then later there was added 72. So Somebody wants to do a, big, a deep dive and figure out why we've got 72 as opposed to 70. What was the holy number? Or perhaps really that's what happened. There were really 72 and they kind of rounded it to 70. I don't have a good answer because my, my investigation only went to find, you know, the actual other version of it. But I think that there's something to be said here for when we've got different versions of the same story that are slightly different in details, but also, you know, the, the thrust of the story is really the same then that does, um, you know, it lends validity to the to the tale. Uh, I want to continue here with the Mishnayot. Um, if you move to Amad Bet, Ein bein kohen mashuach b'shem anamishcha limrubei begadim ela parha ba'al kol hamitzvot. So we've got uh, here, a, again, these Ein bein, the same, uh, another Mishnah that has um, only one real distinction between two other two otherwise similar cases, being the Kohen Gadol who was anointed with Shemana Mishcha, which is the oil of the anointing, meaning that's how the Kohen Kohenei Gedolim were consecrated, right? Um, and so the and the other kind of consecration, which is that one who would be wearing multiple garments, meaning this the the clothing that was specific to the Kohen Gadol, which was how they did it in the Second Temple in the Bayit Sheni, right? So then, what's the difference between the the Kohen Mashuch B'Shemana Mishcha? 
which was basically the coin gadol of the first Beit Hamikdash, versus the coin gadol of the second Beit Hamikdash, who's wearing merube uh, begadim, um, the multiple garments. And the only distinction here is ela parhaba al kol hamitzvot, specifically the the bull that would be offered right um, as a violation of any of the mitzvot, specifically. Um, a Kohen Mashuach, meaning a Kohen who was anointed, who then, you know, told people the wrong thing as a halachic ruling. And then everybody acts on that ruling, right? And they violate the mitzvah that they're supposed to do because they've been given the wrong information by the instruction of the Kohen, uh, of the Kohen Gadol, rather, right? So then, then what are you supposed to do, right? Um, then, meaning you can't, like, at what point do you, how do you, how do you redeem yourself from that? So this is a particular kind of chatat. It's a particular kind of sin offering, um, given those circumstances. And then, So the only difference between a Kohen Gadol, who is being the Kohen Gadol, and no longer being the Kohen Gadol, meaning he is, you know, for whatever reason, he's now, not he's not um continuing in the role maybe he became tummy right meaning like there's a number of reasons that a kohen gadol might no longer be fit for service um the only distinction there would be the the par again a bull that's brought by the kohen gadol on yom kippur and the tenth of an efa which is a meal offering that was brought every day by the kohen gadol and both of those offerings meaning the bull from on yom kippur and the efa meal offerings the tenth of an efa really meal offerings were only brought by the person who is in that role of kohen gadol at that moment meaning not something that someone previously would bring but i i believe what that what that means is there's all kinds of details that a former kohen gadol um i don't know if they're privileges or responsibilities that he would still have um, even though he's no longer functioning as a Kohen Gadol. Um, okay. Um, now I'm going to move on to the next Mishnah. We've got three on this daf, but the third one we're going to save for, for tomorrow because it you know, really carries on to tomorrow's daf and the Gemara is there. Ain Bain. We have another Ain Bain. I've always called these the Ain Bains, right? The, we have... We're talking about a large public altar versus... A small altar, um, except what does this mean? We're talking about a large public altar. Then we're talking about times, let's say, when the, the Mishkan was not in a stable place necessarily. It was, you know, not in Shiloh or was not yet in Yerushalayim where it came to be. Then Mishkan was built up to be the Beit HaMikdash. But there were times when there was an altar that was established in Nov and in Givon and it moved, right? The Everybody kind of followed where the Mizbech went as a the center of the religious um, practice, let's say, right? And then at that same time, let me say this, let's take a step back. At the time that the Mizbech was, in, at the time that the Mishkan, rather, was in Shiloh, they were not allowed to have personal altars outside of the place of Shiloh. And likewise, at the time that the Mishkan was in Yerushalayim, and then the Beit Mikdash, there was no permission to have small altars outside of those locations. Uh, people did, meaning Navi is all about, you know, has, is is replete with people, with Nevi'im prophets rebuking the people for having altars outside of the places where they're supposed to have altars. But at the time that the public altar was in Nov, and it was in Givon, and it was movable, and it was not considered stable at that time, they were allowed to have small altars. 
So the small altars, that's the point here, that there's a, a bamak tana, it's a small personal altar, meaning what families would have, let's say, and they would offer their own offerings there, except except for the Korban Pesach, meaning the Korban Pesach had to be done in the larger communal uh, location of a bama, of an altar. Um, and then the Mishnah here is convenient. It gives us zehaklal. This is the principle or the general rule. Kol shehu nidar, nidar, sorry, any offering that is made as a as a vow, as a generous giving, right? Something that is contributed voluntarily offered on a small altar, but something that is not a vow or not an uh, um, an independent voluntary contribution, but it's a requirement, meaning uh, an asham or a chatat or the psachim, right? Those have to be sacrificed on the Lord. Um, and the Gemara goes on to say, like, really? You've just given us Zehaklal that gives an actual much bigger distinction than just the Psachim. Do you really mean Psachim Vitulo? That's what the Gemara says. Psachim Vitulo? Ema Ka'ain Psachim. Really, the Gemara says, the Mishnah should say, those that are like the Psachim, meaning in that they are obligatory as opposed to uh, it simply being only the Psachim and what about all the other other carbonate. Yeah, I you know, again, it's interesting to see sort of all these distinctions that the mission is trying to make. Great tangent that the mission takes here. Um, <laughs> we're gonna see another one tomorrow. Um, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank is reviews and all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs> 